0: Who would have thought a little zebrafish might hold a key to understanding our own brain? I'm Carolyn Barry and welcome to A Grey Matter, the podcast of the Queensland Brain Institute at the University of Queensland. In this series, we're exploring this concept of fundamental discovery science. What is it and why is it so incredibly important? Today I'm joined by Associate Professor Ethan Scott, who leads the Neural Circuits and Behaviour Lab. Ethan is interested in understanding the biology behind sensory brain conditions like autism spectrum disorder. Ethan, let's begin by talking about what fundamental discovery science is. I think fundamental science, we we could start
1: with the definition. It's really just science that has a dual purpose. So rather than being strictly targeted toward a particular, say, development of a technology or discovery of a specific practical question, it's more open-ended. So it's directed at fundamental questions, fundamental questions in biology and neuroscience, in my case, in the case of the people in my field. Fundamental science, you can take an example. Um, When Rosalind Franklin and the boys described the structure of DNA for the first time, that was an enormously clinically meaningful discovery. There are whole branches of medicine that wouldn't exist if we didn't understand the structure of that molecule. So that was impactful and it was translatable and it was all of those things. That's not why it excited people. It excited people because it was the product of clever people applying themselves and solving a very difficult puzzle, and a puzzle that that everybody could understand. So this held the keys to our code, how our bodies are built, how that information is stored, how that information is duplicated and read, the nuts and bolts of why children resemble their parents. And so you can look at an example like that and see the dual goals of fundamental science. One is to make big discoveries that interest people and that expand human knowledge, which I think has its own inherent value. And at the same time, even if those benefits aren't immediately obvious, This research will have benefits, say in the clinic if you're biomedically oriented or in in any other practical field, depending on the type of research you're doing.
0: The Queensland Brain Institute's main focus is discovery science, which allows researchers the scientific and creative freedom to explore new ideas. Does that change the way you work or the avenues you can explore? It does.
1: So, what it does is when you're welcome to explore fundamental questions, it essentially extends the horizon over which you can plan your work. And so if you're repeatedly being given short-term goals, you necessarily design projects that can answer those questions or that can develop those technologies in a very targeted manner. And that can be effective for a specific goal. But when you have a longer leash, if you will, than that, and if you can look further out and say, I would like to learn more about that process, and I'd like to make discoveries in this space, in order to get to those big questions, I need to develop a bunch of different technologies simultaneously and I need to mesh them in order to get at this longer term, more difficult question. If you're only looking a little distance into the future, you can only make those incremental pieces of progress. But if you're given the luxury, if you're able to take this long view and able to say, I can accomplish this in five years, If I'm permitted to spend a certain amount of time on the periphery, a certain amount of time developing technologies that aren't themselves the goal, but then necessary in order to reach that more ambitious goal in the long term, it essentially expands the scope of the work you can do. So having an institute that supports that type of work explicitly and that says your long-term goals and these bigger, more difficult projects are legitimate uses of a scientist's time, yeah, it, it makes you much more effective toward those bigger questions.
0: Your research has implications for autism spectrum disorder. Can you explain a little bit about this disorder?
1: Uh, Yeah, essentially it's a spectrum or a constellation of symptoms that a patient may have. No two people with ASD have exactly the same set of symptoms. No two people with ASD are the same. Some of these symptoms will be quite familiar to most people. So challenges with forming and maintaining relationships and obstacles to social interactions In some, but certainly not all the cases, there's intellectual disability Repetitive behaviors and very focused interests are the sorts of characteristics that people broadly associate with ASD. And there are a number of other symptoms that are less well known popularly, um, but are nonetheless very important uh, to the disorder. So, our lab, for instance, is particularly focused on sensory properties and sensory abnormalities that are often present in people with ASD. So, a tendency to be hypersensitive to sound or challenges in filtering out extraneous stimuli. So, difficulty in focus. Focusing on the person who's speaking to you in a room that's full of chatter or ignoring a blinking light at the periphery of your vision when you're trying to focus on something in front of you. So ASD essentially is a collection of these symptoms and most people diagnosed with it have some but not all of those symptoms.
0: Ethan, you study zebrafish which most people would only ever see in an aquarium. How did anyone come up with the idea to tackle some really big neuroscience questions using a zebrafish?
1: Well, like most model systems that researchers use, that neuroscientists use to better understand the brain, zebrafish have a combination of of advantages and limitations. And so originally, back in the 1980s, people started developing zebrafish as a model system for developmental studies, not necessarily in the nervous system, but for the development of just about any structure. And they have a few inherent biological characteristics that made them appealing for this work. They're fertilized externally. So one big challenge in developmental biology when you're working on mammals is they spend critical parts of their development in utero, and it's very difficult to study them when they're in utero. So with a fish, an externally fertilized fish, the sperm fertilizes the egg in the open water. So you can watch that process. You can look at the single-celled animal that results, and you can watch it develop straight through to adulthood without any interference to those observations. Another characteristic they have is that in addition to being external at early life stages, they're also transparent. So when you study zebrafish larvae, their skin is transparent. They don't have bones yet. If you're a neuroscientist, importantly, they don't have a skull. And so you can make direct visual observations of the developing body, including the developing brain in a zebrafish that you couldn't make in an animal that's not transparent. Uh, They're also quite small. So there are just some technical limitations to the scales of things that you can observe with a microscope. And so zebrafish just almost coincidentally have these traits where they're external, they're transparent, and they're small. And as a consequence, you can put a live intact larva under the microscope and simply watch its brain develop. It's also, because of the transparency, very easy to get light into and out of their brains. So with the advent, for instance, of calcium imaging, so this is a technology where you can put a protein into the brains of these animals. You can express a protein in all the neurons in the brain and that protein fluoresces. And when the neuron is active, it fluoresces more brightly. So you can watch through time in this completely intact animal and see which neurons are active simply by which ones are blinking. In a larger model system, in an internal model system, in a model system that isn't transparent, you wouldn't be able to do these things. And so that's sort of a brief history of the properties that made zebrafish an appealing model system originally. And then as these new technologies have come online, they've been almost by coincidence particularly applicable to this model system and particularly useful in this model system.
0: But zebrafish don't have autism spectrum disorder, right? So how do you make the connection?
1: (laughs) Uh, I think the first thing I would say, there's no such thing as an autistic zebrafish. Autism, even more than most disorders, is a fundamentally human disorder. It involves the most sensitive of social interactions, things that other model systems, including FISH, but including, I'd say, all model systems, simply can't capture. And so the utility of the model systems, then, is the incisiveness with which you can address questions about brain function. So if you look at a human being who has autism, he or she might have certain easily observable social symptoms, but underlying that may be the kinds of sensory symptoms that I talked about before. So someone in a noisy room at a cocktail party who has difficulty having a conversation, that could be interpreted, and indeed it is, a challenge that they're facing socially, when fundamentally that may be a sensory processing deficit. So what can you do with a human being that has this problem? There's only so much you can do. You can look in an MRI machine and look at patterns of activity in the brain or an EEG. But what you'd love to be able to do, but for both practical and ethical reasons you can't, is you'd like to be able to isolate that person's sensory systems, see how their brain is actually processing sensory information, and from there try to learn the mechanisms by which they're struggling. And so zebrafish, other model systems have advantages. What you can do particularly well in zebrafish is isolate neural circuits and neural networks. You can look across the whole brain and see every functioning neuron simultaneously. You can look for correlations across different parts of the brain. You can do much more incisive studies of those parts of the brain that are relevant to ASD in a zebrafish. But that comes with important caveats. So in the same way that there's no such thing as an autistic zebrafish, we have to keep in mind which traits some people with ASD have and which of those can be studied legitimately in our particular model system in zebrafish. So my own group doesn't study social behaviors in larvae. Larvae do have restricted social behaviors, but the parts of the brain that are responsible for those behaviors are very, very different in a fish versus a human. Fish don't have a cerebral cortex, so this wrinkly part that covers our entire brain is absent from a fish. It has the little ancient version of that in its forebrain. From our perspective, even if we could characterize a social deficit in a zebrafish larva and describe some of the circuits that are responsible for it, that wouldn't necessarily be very valuable in terms of translation because the circuits have changed so much through evolution since humans and fish went in different directions. However, if you look at other neural structures, if you look at the retina, for instance, so this is the light-sensing part in the back of our eyes, a fish retina and a human retina are actually very similar. They've got similar layers, they've got similar cell types, and information travels through them in similar ways. Likewise, some of the early structures in the brain that receive visual information, that receive auditory information, are fairly well conserved from fish to humans. So with this incisiveness, with this ability to do really penetrating research in zebrafish larvae, we swing our research toward those things that we think may be relevant to humans. So this basic visual processing, this basic auditory processing, the means by which information from different sensory modalities, so this is called sensory integration, the mean by which an event can happen. And you can recognize that both your visual impressions of that event and your auditory impressions of that event are the same thing they're combined in your brain into a single event, we really don't know much about how that happens at the circuit level in the human brain. And in a zebrafish larva, where we actually have a fighting chance at describing the circuits, if we can describe those circuits, they may well then have relevance to humans. So as with any experiment in any model system, we have to take the experimental strengths with the limitations of what will be relevant to humans and try to ask the best questions we can. Again, in our case, that brings us towards sensory questions.
0: You use a couple of cutting edge techniques that have the potential to really change our understanding of how information flows through networks of a brain. Can you explain how these work a little more?
1: The goal that we've had, and there have been other groups working on these same things, is to be able to look at the entire brain function while resolving the individual neurons within it. So, this is meant to address a problem that neuroscientists have always had, where there have been methods for looking at the entire brain. Say, an EEG or an MRI allows you to take an animal or, or a human and look at activity across the whole brain. But you're typically resolving volumes of brain space, maybe a millimeter cube. You can see what activity is happening in that millimeter and in every other millimeter but every one of those cubic millimeters contains tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of neurons. So while you can see the big picture, you can't see the brush strokes, you can't see the circuits and the networks at the cellular level. Now the other whole approach to studying brain function historically has been to put an electrode into the brain and listen to one or a few neurons and technologies now make it possible to listen to dozens or a few hundred neurons at a time. And so you can see in a great deal of detail what the individual units are doing but without the context of what the other 100 billion neurons are doing in the brain at the same time. And so there's always been a gap between these two methods where it's been very difficult to address whole populations of neurons. The goal that we set out to accomplish and that others have as well in this small transparent model system is to see the whole brain and resolve every single neuron within that brain and look at its function as an individual while we're also recording the activity of all the other neurons. Once we've done that, we have a kind of rich data set of the whole brain at the single neuron level where we can start to begin to understand the circuits and the networks that are in there. And so what do we have to be able to do in order to accomplish that? I've already talked about calcium imaging and these probes were designed by other people and we've adopted them where we can express a protein, a fluorescent protein, throughout the brains of these larval zebrafish. And so in the nucleus of each neuron, you have lots of copies of this protein. When the calcium levels are high, this protein is bright. And so in effect, that means that in an active neuron, you're gonna get a blink of activity. What that means is across the brain, you might have 80,000, 100,000 neurons, something on that order, where every neuron is blinking when it's active. And that's a first step toward the goal that I've described then you need a method for capturing all of that activity. And so a zebrafish brain is small. For perspective, it's it's about a quarter of a millimeter from top to bottom. It's maybe a millimeter long, maybe half a millimeter wide. So it's quite small, but that's big. If you're going in with a microscope and you want enough power to see individual neurons, that becomes quite a big structure to image. And so we've adopted a technology called light sheet microscopy, whereby we can illuminate one plane within the animal's brain, see all the neurons within that plane, and whether or not they're bright, whether or not they're blinking and active at that particular time point. And then we quickly scan that plane through the brain so we can see all the different depths. So what we have now is this entire brain with all of its neurons blinking when active, and we have a microscopic approach for detecting all of that activity through time. And when we do that, we can see tens to thousands of neurons simultaneously, and we return to them often enough that every time they blink, we should detect it in one of our scans. So all of this is on the detection side of things. This allows us to see where the activity is within the brain and which particular neurons are active in a particular animal's brain. And we might do this when we're presenting a sensory stimulus because we're interested in what neurons respond to it. We might say, okay, what neurons always fire whenever a certain behavior is about to occur? And we can start to see some of those connections that exist between the stimuli and the responses and some of the networks that may mediate those things. The next step is that we'd like to be able to go in and manipulate function within this brain in order to test the function that a particular neuron blinks every time the animal's about to move its tail doesn't mean that that neuron is driving those tail movements. It could be coincidental, or it could be part of modulating that effect. It could have a lot of different roles. And so another set of technologies that came into their own perhaps a decade ago, referred to as optogenetics, permits you to go in and manipulate the functions of particular targeted neurons. This then allows us to say, not only does this set of neurons activity coincide with the behavior, but if we activate them and we activate only them, that behavior then plays out. So we can say that they have a a role in actually driving that behavior. All of this then involves another set of genetic technologies and another set of optical technologies. So I talked about the light sheet microscopy before. The optogenetics then requires us to project exactly the light into the brain that we need in order to activate our targeted neurons and this this sea of other neurons. So this involves creating customized holograms of light, customized spatial three-dimensional light structures that we can project into the brain to do exactly the manipulations that we'd like to do. You take a step back from all of that with the goal of being able to see the whole brain and all the individual neurons functioning within it, And then the added goal of going in and manipulating those neurons in a way that tells us about the circuit function, we see a confluence of the fundamental properties, the model system, the genetic technologies, and the optical technologies all being brought to bear on this platform.
0: The zebrafish are alive, right, when you're doing the experiments?
1: Well, that's one of the big upsides of the zebrafish model system. So we don't need to do dissections. All of these are transient observation or transient manipulations. So we can do lots of consecutive tests of the relationships between, say, a circuit and a behavior or a stimulus and a set of neurons that responds. So the fact that this is happening in a completely intact and alert animal, an animal that after the experiment we can release and it'll swim away and survive, allows us to make much more meaningful observations in the nervous system.
0: How do you get these proteins to switch on in the fish?
1: What you do is you take this gene encoding the protein and you put it into the animal's genome. There are also steps you can take to make sure that it'll only be expressed in the types of cells or the types of structures that you're interested in. And you grow that animal up. And if you're lucky, it will have incorporated this piece of DNA and it'll pass it on to its offspring. So it's offspring then, if you remember it, it has two parts to this DNA, one controlling where it's expressed and one controlling what's expressed. And through that process and by planning it carefully, we can get, for instance, this genetically encoded calcium indicator, this protein expressed in the brain. And once that's done, you can keep doing those observations down the generations.
0: How do zebrafish brains relate to human brains? I mean, can we really apply what we learn in a zebrafish to ourselves?
1: Yeah, it depends on the question. And so that, again, it's important to consider the model system. It's important to consider what is and is not contained within a zebrafish brain versus a human brain. And then to ask the right questions so that, yes, we can make meaningful translations from what we discover in zebrafish through to human. And so if you look at a zebrafish brain, what you have is a brain that's split off from the human lineage uh, hundreds of millions of years ago. And so the question is, how much do they have in common from back at that point in time? The answer is a surprising amount. And so in general terms, the more recent structures, evolutionarily, are those that are the most different between the two model systems. In particular, the cerebral cortex, so this big wrinkly part that covers the whole surface of the human brain, that's a relatively recent development, and certainly its expansion to be the dominant structure is a very recent development in the human lineage. If you go back and look at the zebrafish equivalent, it's a very small part of, at least in larvae, and not especially a behaviorally important part of the brain. If you go back to the things that we have in common with that common ancestor, so these are things like being able to see and hear things, being able to interpret events in our surroundings, by which I mean lots of sensory processes, the organs that are part of the sensory systems, so the eyes and the ears, the skin, the inner ear, vestibular, taste and smell, creatures have been doing that for more than long enough for us to have those things in common. And so if you look at some of the structures further back in the brain, and some of the structures that are more directly involved in processing sensory stimuli, especially those that don't happen in the cerebral cortex in humans, you see quite a lot of homology. And in the same way, if you look at at the output structures, so the structures that are actually controlling the behaviors and the movements that the animal might undergo, ignoring differences like tail versus legs, which are actually surprisingly unimportant, the structures that then mediate movement Those are shared across that entire lineage. And as a result, some of those structures are rather well conserved as well. So, that's one reason why, as our lab takes an interest in making discoveries relevant to ASD, we don't study social interactions. We don't study intellectual disability. We study sensory perceptions, sensory integration, sensory processing, those very structures that haven't changed so much over that period of time, and in which the circuits and the networks in zebrafish still fairly closely resemble those in humans.
0: So it seems that you need to have that discovery science initially to be able to translate that to humans.
1: I think that's right. There are too many ways in which these symptoms could be arising in a human for you exhaustively to explore them. But if you can do the discovery science in a simpler model system and really pin down what's going wrong or you know, what's going differently in that system, then you have a lead. Then you have a path to follow toward trying to describe the same things in humans. And without that path, it's just too vast to explore.
0: It can take years and years for the discovery science to translate into real world treatments, though. Why does it take so long?
1: I think it's a good question to address and to take head on. It's taking so long because it's such a complex problem. In a human being, in rough terms, you might have 100 billion neurons and 100 trillion connections among them. And no two people are the same. And so no two treatments will work exactly the same in two people. If you look at a human, you also, just for technical and ethical reasons, can't get into the workings of the brain. You can only observe it in very superficial ways. So the task we have is to try to explain and manipulate the function of the most complex thing in the universe without being able to study it directly. And so we back off, and we start to break it into pieces, And we start to study it in model systems where we can address these pieces in meaningful ways, come up with answers to specific questions that may have relevance to the functioning of the human brain. But there's such complexity there, and there are so many pieces. Many of these questions are difficult to address experimentally and theoretically. So by the end of the process, you have an enormous endeavor. So the rate of discovery is increasing all the time, but the scale of the questions that we're trying to address are functionally limitless. At the same time, I think it's important to remember that fundamental research has already, in countless cases, delivered bedside improvements. It's not a matter of it's all happening at once. But for someone who's asking when we will have figured out the entire brain and how to treat all mental illness, no time soon. It's just an enormous endeavor. It's a mind-boggling endeavor.
0: Do you think your research will help people better understand autism spectrum disorder?
1: We have a role to play in that. Again, our group is focused on sensory processing and sensory perception. I think it's important to reinforce the important role that sensory perception plays in the disorder. Traditionally, these people have been stigmatized as just people with social problems, where if you understand that for a subset of people with ASD, an important contribution comes from their perception of the world around them. I think we can all sympathize with having difficulty hearing somebody you're talking to in a crowded space. You can't hear them, you get frustrated, you get anxious. You may fail socially in a setting like that simply because there's too much background noise. And while we might experience that occasionally in a very loud setting, some with ASD might be experiencing it virtually all the time. And seen from that perspective, I think that it's a disorder that a lot more of the general public can resonate with and better understand the challenges that these people are facing.
0: What do you enjoy about science?
1: For my own disposition, I like the discovery. I like the basic questions. I like the tinkering and the challenges associated with trying to solve these technical problems and trying to discover some of these fundamentals. That's well suited to me, but that only works in a context where there are other people with the skills and the motivation to do the
0: translation and to
1: to do the clinical work.
0: What are you proud of?
1: Well, I think really... If you view science as a community effort, all the scientists across the world hopefully are working together in my field to better understand the brain, specifically to better understand how events in our surroundings are are perceived and interpreted by the brain. So any time that you can, in your lab, make a, a contribution that really moves that process forward, that's a proud moment. So my proudest moments would be some of the papers we've put out, for instance, describing a particular stream of visual information that goes from one brain structure, the thalamus, into another, the tectum, and the types of visual information that makes that trip and the ways that it may contribute then to the brain's interpreting an event that it sees in its surroundings. When you can make a concrete contribution to the whole field's effort to understand that process better, that's a very rewarding moment.
0: That was Associate Professor Ethan Scott speaking about using zebrafish to understand the underlying sensory pathways of autism spectrum disorder. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. is A-Cast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're gonna love. God bless, everybody. I'm Corey Cambridge, host of OPP,
1: which stands for Other People's Podcast. On OPP, I sit down and interview America's top podcasters to learn more about them, the dope shows they created. In every episode, they even share with me their top three favorite podcasts. Check out my latest episode with Aaron almond Updike and Aaron Welsh, host of the amazing podcast, by searching OPP with Corey Cambridge on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts.